Amen. Amen. Good morning and have a seat. It is good to be with you this morning. Haynes Creek, uh, love being here with you today. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's freezing outside. Oh, look at that. I love it. I love this section over here. You guys are all awesome. That's amazing. You guys are incredible. Thank you. Y'all are making my morning. Um, if you don't know what that uh, card is in reference to, I'll, I'll, I'll share that in a second. But uh, man, that just made my day right there. Uh, love you guys, man. That was incredible. Um, all right. So uh, welcome. Good morning. If this is your first time, I want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us. And we would love a chance to follow up and just say thank you so much for your visit. Um, so if you could do me a favor, make sure you stop by our Welcome Center as you head home today. Uh, we got a free gift we'd love to put in your hand today. Before you leave, we also have these little welcome cards. If you wouldn't mind filling that out, those come back to me and it just gives me a chance to, uh, to let you know how much we appreciate your visit. And, and we truly do appreciate you being our guest today. That, that's not just words that we say. We really do mean that. Um, and, and just a quick announcement before we get started. Um, we shared this for the last couple of weeks, but we are going to be starting a women's Bible study at the end of February. So Wednesday night, starting February 28th, um, we will uh, have a women's Bible study hosted at our house, by, led by my wife. Um, we're going to be walking through this Jen Wilkins study called Abide, going through the New Testament books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's going to be an awesome time, fellowship of digging deep into the Word as well. So ladies, if you're interested, I'd encourage you to go ahead and get signed up. You can sign up on our website right there as you see, hanescreek.com slash abide. Um, we will need to have those signups in soon so we can start ordering the workbooks and make sure we have enough. Uh, we are asking for $10 to help out with the cost of those workbooks, but here's the deal. If that will prohibit you from signing up, please sign up anyways, and don't even worry one bit about that, okay? That's not a make or break thing, and I don't want you to feel the weight or the pressure of, man, I wish I could do it, but I just can't, like, no. We want, if you're interested, sign up, and don't worry about that part of it, okay? That's a promise. Uh, we will not hound you or ask for that in any way, shape, or form. So, um, ladies, sign up for that. If you have any questions about that, please let, let me know, and I'd love to answer any of those questions that you might have. Um, let me pray for us, and we will get started. Jesus, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people, Lord. What a, what a gift it is. What a blessing it is, Lord. Forgive us when we take this for granted or, or don't see the, the wonder of it, Lord, that you take broken sinners like us and, and bring us not only into your global family, but into your local family, Jesus. So we thank you for this time to gather and worship and lift high your name, Lord. We pray your hand of blessing upon it, Lord. Would you work and move in power in this place this morning, Lord? Would you speak to us through your word, Lord? We want to hear from you, Lord. We don't want to hear my thoughts or my ideas. Take that away, Jesus. We want to hear from you, would you teach us? Would you open up our hearts and our eyes to see you in new and deeper ways as we dig into your word, Lord? We know that you promise that it does not return void. So, Lord, give us humble hearts as we sit before you and, and hear what you would have for us today, Lord. Would you teach us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us into the people that you want us to be, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, just a heads up, we are going to be jumping back into Philippians today, but before we get to that, I just want to recap the last two weeks, and if you saw those signs, that's what that's in reference to. Uh, we spent the last two weeks digging into what we call each year Vision Sunday, and, and part of this was two weeks ago, we kind of recapped who we are at a high level. You know, what's our main vision or mission statement, whatever word you want to put on that, and, and the way we define it here at Haynes Creek is we exist, our goal, our objective is to be a church that loves God, loves people, and makes 
disciples. So two weeks ago, we kind of broke down what that means at a high level and then also how we seek to, uh, to achieve that vision and mission that the Lord has given us. So if you missed that week, I'd encourage you to go check out the sermon. And then last week, what we did is we kind of said, okay, that, that's who we are at a high level. Now, what does that mean for us in the year 2024? What are we going to try to do? What are we trying to accomplish this year as we seek to walk in obedience to that vision? And what we laid out last week was that, that really this is a two-year plan. This is a two-year goal that we laid out for you last week. And the whole goal for these next two years is to establish this church for the long haul, right? We want this church to be around for decades and decades and generations and generations, but to do that, we, we need enough people and resources to be the church that God is calling us to be, to do the ministry that he's calling us to do. So for the next two years, that's our goal. That's what we're after. And we want to, in order to accomplish that, we want to be the church and build the church. That's the language, right? We want to be the church and build the church. And the way we kind of described that was uh, Haynes Creek has been around since 2016, right? That's early 2016, end of 2015. There's kind of some debate on when it actually got started there, but uh, it got started around that time. And for the last several years, we've just kind of been circling around. There's been a lot of starting and stopping, taking two steps forward and three steps back kind of thing. So we kind of laid it out in terms of a road trip, right? If we're, I used to drive out to, to Dallas, Texas every year to see my wife's family. We would drive out there. And in order to get to Dallas, you hop on I-20, you head west. That's the most direct route to go. And the first city you come to, the big city that you come to, first big city you come to is Birmingham, Alabama. In order to get to Dallas, you got to go through Birmingham. So we have all these lofty goals of what we want to see this church be and do for generations to come, right? That's, that's more the Dallas area, right? Like that's, that's more the final destination. But our goal for the next two years is we want to get to Birmingham. The next step, the, the, the city that we need to get to next, Birmingham, is establishing this church for generations to come. Let's get enough people and resources to be the church that God is calling us to be. So that's our goal for the next two years. That's why you see the signs, Birmingham. Like, we're not, we're not moving this church to Birmingham. Yeah, that's not the goal. We're, we're going to be in Oxford, right? Like, this is where the church is and where God has called us and planted us. But that's our figure of speech, right? In order to get to the next step, that's Birmingham for us. And we are going all out to get there. And, and to do that, church, we need you. We need your help. We need all of us together to make this happen. So if you're here, if this is your church, let's jump two feet in and let's do this, y'all. And, and I, I, I say this with all sincerity, like this is not pastor talk, but I truly believe that God is up to something. I truly believe that he has preserved this church for the last several years for a purpose, and it's not for us to keep circling around Atlanta, all right? It's not for us to keep circling around, taking two steps forward and three steps back. That, that, that's not what he's doing. I believe he is up to something. I believe we are on the cusp of something great and powerful and big. And that we're going to look back in years and be like, man, y'all remember when the Lord did this? Y'all remember when the Lord did that? Y'all remember what God was doing there? Like, how awesome is that? And he's going to get so much glory and honor to his name. I truly believe that, church. And I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to be a part of this work. Help us out. Help us get there. We need you. All right. So if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back, check out that sermon. You can check it out on our podcast. You can check it out on our YouTube channel. Listen to that. Um, and and y'all, let's do this. Let's get to Birmingham. All right. So um, with that, let's let's jump into what we have today. I know that's kind of like a hard shift there, but just want to recap for those that may have missed the last two weeks. So we are jumping back into Philippians. So all the way back in August, we started walking verse by verse through the New Testament book of Philippians. That's typically what we will do here on Sundays 
at Haynes Creek is we will walk verse by verse through books of the Bible. So now we find ourselves in Philippians, and, and it's an incredible book, y'all. It's, so, it's filled with such uh, good practical wisdom and truth that we've just been soaking in for months. So we, we took a break once we finished chapter two in mid-December. We've been on a break since then. So now we're jumping right back in, and just to kind of refresh our minds as to what Philippians is and what Paul's doing and how it all kind of ties together, I just want to kind of give us a recap. So Philippians is a book written by Paul. It's a letter written by Paul to the New Testament church in Philippi, modern-day Greece. Uh, So Paul writes this letter to this uh, church in Philippi while he is sitting under house arrest in Rome. So if you remember the end of the book of Acts, Paul goes uh, to Jerusalem, gets uh, his life threatened, eventually gets arrested. He spends years in prison for doing nothing wrong. He's completely innocent. And now we find himself in Rome under house arrest, guarded by a soldier, Roman soldier, 24-7, awaiting his trial before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at this time, who could decide on a whim, just having a bad day, Paul, don't like what you're saying, kill this guy, get him out of here. That's where Paul's at. And he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. And what we find out in this letter is, man, they've got a deep connection, man. The the Philippians and Paul, man, they love each other. And part of what Paul is doing in this letter is just encouraging and, and loving on this New Testament church. And one of the themes that we constantly see, and we're going to see it again today, is this idea of finding joy in Christ. I mean, we see that over and over and over again. We see Paul encourage the Philippians to live a life fully devoted to Jesus, right? We, we hear the famous words, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Not just a, one of the most popular verses in Philippians, but in the entire Old and New Testament, right? That's what Paul's doing. He's trying to recapture the Philippians' heart for Jesus and, and light it back on fire and spur them on to keep on loving and walking in the direction of Jesus, right? So that's what he's doing in Philippians. We, we ended chapter two by Paul kind of taking a little bit of a shift. So part of Philippians is he's giving this kind of life update because the Philippians are concerned, right? He's, in, he's under house arrest. He's in prison. He's awaiting trial. Like they're worried about their friends. So part of this is Paul just kind of giving them updates on things. So we see that at the end of chapter two, Paul gives them an update on, on two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, right? Timothy, his close friend and partner in ministry, he's like, hey, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And then Epaphroditus, who was a member, who was a, a key leader in the church in Philippi, who carried a letter from Philippi to Paul in Rome. And Paul is sending him back with this very letter that we are reading today. So that's where chapter two ends. And now Paul is going to transition into his next set of topics. So that's where we pick it up today. So Philippians chapter three, we're going to look at the first three verses of Philippians chapter three today. So Philippians chapter three, if you have your Bible, awesome. If not, you can look on the uh, screen behind me. We also have Bibles at our table out there. If you don't own a Bible, please, please, please take one of those. That is our gift to you. But Philippians chapter three, starting in verse one, it says this. In addition, my brothers, man, that's, sorry, y'all. You got me, Blake? Did I turn myself back on? I don't know. All right, there we go. You're the man. Thank you, Blake. All right, let's read this together. Philippians chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. 
Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Okay, let's, let's pause there. Let's pause there. We're going to stop there for today. And, and what Paul is doing here is he's, he's transitioning, right? He's transitioning from the, uh, the travel update that he gave at the end of chapter 2, and now he's getting, kind of taking a hard left turn here, sharp turn into a new Topic. So he's transitioning into this new section in Philippians. It starts here in chapter 3, verse 1, and carries uh, at least through chapter 4, verse 1. There's some debate on where it kind of ends this section and transitions to the next stop. But, but I'll say it stops in, in chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, he starts out saying, in addition, maybe some of your translations, so I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version, so we have up here on the screen. Um, it says, in addition, some of your verses, or some of your versions might say, finally. Which is kind of misleading, right? Because this is the halfway point of the book. And, you know, Paul's not one of those preachers that's like, in conclusion, and then, you know, half hour later, you're like, I thought you were wrapping this thing up. What's going on here? Sorry if I've ever done that here, but I try not to. So Paul's not saying final. Like, these are not final concluding thoughts from Paul. We'll get to that in chapter four. This is more, as it says here, in addition, you know, more so, hey, I've got some more things to say to you guys. So listen up, and, and here it is, right? So he's transitioning here to say some more really important stuff to the Philippians. And he says here, he tells us, you know, as it says, uh, to write to you again about this is no trouble. What he's about to say in this section are things that Paul has already said to the Philippians. We don't know how many times, maybe several times, right? Maybe just once or twice or whatever, but it's, it's worth repeating. And there's a lesson in there. Man, I'm not going to come out here for too long. There's a lesson in there that, that sometimes things are worth repeating. And, and sometimes we can just, especially when it comes to Scripture, and maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you've read Philippians a hundred times, you're like, dude, I've heard this before. But what Paul reminds us here is, is there's some things that are really worth repeating. And even though it may seem like basic or, man, I've heard this before, Paul is, is reminding us that there's still good stuff there. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of the truth, right? So Paul's saying, look, I know I've said this to you before. I, I know, but it's worth repeating. So, so dial in, pay attention, don't, don't lose focus, stay with me here, right? Because it's important, and he says it's a safeguard. We'll come back at the end about what that actually means there. But, but he's saying this is, this is important, and it's for your safety, and what he tells us here is, again, we've seen this over and over again. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, that's a command. We've seen this over and over again. Paul uses this word constantly in Philippians, which is why we constantly talk about it. In here, it's worth repeating, and it's good news for us, and it's a truth that we need to sit in. We are to rejoice in the Lord. We, as believers, are to find our joy in the Lord. And Paul once again reminds us of this. Now it begs the question, like, why is Paul constantly talking about rejoicing and finding joy in Jesus? Like, why do we see this over and over again? We've only covered two chapters, and already we've seen this several times. And guess what? He's going to say it again in chapters 3 and 4. He keeps repeating it. Why? Why is he doing this? He's making a point, right? When we repeat things, we're, we're trying to make a point. And that's what Paul's doing for us and his audience as a Philippians. He's reminding us of this incredible truth that we as believers are to have joy in Christ. We're to have joy in Christ. Not joy in our circumstances. Not joy in whatever we have going on in life, right? Joy in Christ. Remember Paul's circumstances. He is unjustly in prison and has been so for years. Chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier awaiting trial before the most powerful man who could kill him on a whim. And yet Paul is constantly telling the Philippians that he has joy. 
And he's calling them to have joy as well. And he's calling us to have joy in the Lord. Let's not miss that. Yes, he said it several times already. And he's going to say it more. And we're going to talk about it more when we get to those phases. Because it's important for us to remember that beautiful truth that we are to have joy in Jesus. No matter our circumstances. No matter the ups and downs. No matter the hardships and the difficulty. No matter the persecution or the cultural pressure to compromise. We can and we should have joy. We should have joy. No matter our context. But look, here's the thing. Here's the thing about joy. It can easily be lost. It can easily be lost if we let it. And there's a lot of things, there's a lot of people in this world that want to steal our joy, that want to rob us of the joy that we have in Christ. And part of what Paul is saying here is that we need to protect our joy. We need to safeguard our joy in Christ. So keep that in mind as we kind of talk about this, that that idea frames not only this section, but really, or not only these verses, but really this entire section. So keep that in mind as we go. So Paul reminds us to have joy in Christ, and now he kind of starts out in chapter 3, verse 2 here, uh, kind of a new section, like I said. And here he's going to talk a little bit more theology, a little bit more doctrine, and, and, and more so the practical implications of what we believe, right? So, so that's what he's going to be digging into in chapter 3 and chapter 4. So, so as we start this out, these first three verses are kind of like an introductory statement almost to this entire section. So that's why we're only covering three verses. But in these three verses, he, he's doing something for us. And just to kind of give you an idea of, of the outline here, what, what Paul gives us in these three verses is he gives us a warning, he gives us assurance, and he gives us a definition. And all three of those things are centered around the, the doctrine and the idea and clarifying the idea of, of who are the people of God. Who are the people of God? And we're going to talk about that, we're going to define that, and then how that relates to our joy in Christ. So that's where we're going today. So if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes, I forgot to tell you this too. Last week we, we gave out these journals as our gift to you. So if you were here, but maybe you were serving or you just didn't get one or, or you forgot it, we, we've got plenty on the table as you go out. So please uh, take one of these. If you've got folks you want to give them to, by all means, take a handful and pass them out to people. Um, it, I, you know, it's just nice to have another journal. I don't know about you, I like having another journal. Man, I got a shelf full of this stuff, but I, I love it. So anyways, take notes, dig in, and, and let's, uh, let's, let's jump in together. So the first, the first thing that he does here, the first thing he gives us is a warning, a warning. Let's look again at verse two. So again, he says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Verse two, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. What's he, what's he saying here? What, what's going on? I mean, this is some harsh language, right? Like, Paul is, is not mincing his words. He's not playing around. He's not pulling his punches. Like, I love it when Paul, like, just gets direct, right? Like, he just is so direct and just, like, I'm not messing around here. Pay attention. Pay attention to this. Watch out for these, for these things, for these people. Watch out for the dogs, the evil workers, and those who mutilate the flesh. So what's, what's he doing here? What, who is this warning directed at? It's false teachers. Paul is directing this warning to false teachers who infiltrate the church. And our best guess, based on some other things that we'll talk about and some things that he says in verse 3, the best guess is he's aiming this warning at a group of people that were called, that we now know as what's called the Judaizers. You guys ever heard that term, the Judaizers? If you look at Galatians, Galatians is all about Paul just 
blasting the Judaizers and just being like, man, don't listen to these guys. They don't know what they're talking about. It's false teaching, false doctrine. Don't follow them. So most likely it's directed at the Judaizers. No, no, who is that group if you're unfamiliar? The Judaizers were a group of Jewish believers. Now we could debate on whether they were, you know, true, had their true faith in Jesus or not, but, but most likely they were Jewish Christians who had put their faith in Jesus, but what they did was they added to that. They added to that. So they would say, yes, put your faith in Jesus, but in order to truly be saved, to truly be the people of God, not only do you need faith in Jesus, but you need to also follow the Old Testament law. So in order to be a believer, yes, faith in Jesus, but also you need to be a really good Jew. That's what they would say. So one of the the, the landmark things that we see, and we see this in Galatians, is one of the things that they said, man, if you're really going to do this, if you're really going to follow Jesus and put your faith in him, you got to follow the Old Testament law, and part of that includes circumcision. So dudes out there who put their faith in Jesus, let's do this. And that sounds awful, right? That sounds very painful. But that's what they're saying. That was the Judaizers' theology, was not only do you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to come under and live under the Old Testament law and walk in obedience to the Old Testament law. And Paul comes out, and he's just like, Paul just does not like adding to the gospel. We'll see this in a second. But um, this is why he uses such harsh language. It's because that's what these folks were doing. Now, there's debate on whether or not the Judaizers were actually present in Philippi or not, right? There's some debate among Bible scholars, but maybe it was they're present there, and Paul's doing this warning because he's like, man, they're here. They're at your church. You need to be careful. Maybe it's just they were in Rome, and it's just fresh on Paul's mind. Or maybe he's seen this so much throughout his ministry, throughout going around and telling the gospel and preaching the gospel and the Jewish folks coming behind distorting things, that he's just kind of like a preemptive attack. Like, if these people come, since I'm not there to help you out, don't listen to them. Keep away. Watch out for them. So let's dig into to his warning here and see what he calls these people, because I think it's, it's beneficial for us. So first he calls them dogs. He calls them dogs. And what, it's important for us to know, dogs in this culture... We're not looked at like dogs in our culture. How many of you guys have a dog? How many of y'all have a dog? I have a dog. I, I would prefer not to, but we do. And, and it's for the kids and my wife, and they love the dog. And I'm, I'm at best indifferent towards the dog. You know, we kind of, ideally, we keep away from each other. That's the plan. Anybody that comes over, like, y'all come over house for dinner, I'm going to ask you, do you want to take the dog home? Uh, once my kids aren't, aren't listening because they'd be mad at me. But dogs at this time were not looked at at dogs at our time. And we love dogs. We have dogs in our home. We have dogs as our pet. Man, I was, I was seeing somebody walk their dog the other day, and it's been freezing outside, right? But, but what did the dog have? It had a little, little jacket, a little sweater vest on. I'm like, what, what are we doing? What are we doing? And some of y'all are like, no, it's fine. We dress up our dog all the time. To each their own. Kinder dresses up our dog too. We got a, our dog Christmas jammies, all right? So I'm not judging. I'm not judging. We do the same thing, all right? I'm not judging. But that is not how people view dogs in this culture. People view dogs in this culture as just like scavengers, right? They weren't domesticating dogs as pets. And, and dogs would just kind of wander the streets of the city and just scavenge on whatever trash or dead animals they would find. So they looked at dogs as filthy and disgusting beasts that were just wandering the street, streets and just kind of a, a scourge and a drain on the city's resources, right? Like people did not like dogs. And Jewish people especially saw dogs as unclean. We'll talk about what that means in a second, but they saw dogs as unclean. And what they would do, the Jewish people would refer to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as dogs, because they believed Jewish or non-Jewish people were unclean. Now, there's this whole idea in the Old Testament of clean versus unclean. And the Jews were called to follow certain laws. Like, oh, that's where you get all the dietary laws. And, like, you can eat certain things. You can wear certain things. Uh, you can and can't do certain things at certain times of the year and things like that. Because if you did, then you'd become unclean. 
So there's this idea, if you were clean as a Jewish person, then you were right before God. You had a right standing before God. You were righteous in his eyes as clean. And the moment you became unclean, well, then you were outside of God's blessing. You were outside of God's righteousness. So the Jewish people, man, they did everything they could to stay clean and to not venture into unclean. And what happened was, because this is what we typically do, right? You've got a boundary. In order to make sure we don't cross that boundary, we add more boundaries and extra boundaries on top of that just to make sure we stay away. So that's kind of what was happening in the Jewish practice at this time. So, man, they wouldn't even go near or associate with a Gentile, no matter if that person had put their faith in Jesus or not, right? So that's kind of the mindset of the Jewish person at this time. And they would refer to Gentiles as dogs. And here what Paul is doing is he's reversing. And he's saying, oh, you think the Gentiles are unclean. No, 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 no. You and your false teaching, that's unclean. You think you're being righteous, but really you're being a dog. You are the dogs. Your false teaching is leading people astray, and now you've become unclean. You think you're clean, but you're really unclean. Like, so Paul is reversing this. And then he calls them evil workers. Evil workers. Another thing the Judaizers took great pride in was their uh, righteousness and obedience to the law. So they would refer to the, these works of righteousness as works of the law, right? If they were walking in obedience and they felt like they were righteous before God, they, they would talk about the works of the law. And that that was, that was good and righteous and pleasing to the Lord. And again, Paul is reversing that and saying, no, 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 you think you're doing works of righteousness? No, no, no. Through your false doctrine, through your false teaching, you are leading people astray. You're, you're bringing in a false gospel. And now no longer are you doing works of righteousness. You're doing works of evil. Evil. Again, Paul is not pulling punches here, man. He does not play with false teaching and false doctrine. We see him say this in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. That's how Paul views anybody who teaches falsely, who teaches things against scripture, who teaches things that you have to add to the gospel, you have to add things to salvation. So that, Paul, again, he's not messing around. And then he calls them that there are those who mutilate the flesh. And in this moment, he's taking on their specific theological point that Gentile believers had to also be circumcised. Now, we can't tell in, in, the, in the English language here, but the word for mutilate and the word for circumcision are very similar. They have the same suffix, if I'm getting that proper in grammar. They have a different prefix, okay? That's the only difference. You'd see that if we were reading the Greek, but we speak English here, so we're not going to do that. But it's, it's a little play on words. And what he's doing is he's taking this idea of circumcision, and he's using a word that takes it to its extreme measures and says, that's what you guys are doing. That's what you guys are doing. You're mutilating the flesh. Again, it's this idea of, man, you think you're good with God. You think you're following his ways, and you're doing the exact opposite. And because of that, you're mutilating the flesh. You're mutilating the flesh. So Paul is, is using some harsh language here, right? He's using some harsh, some direct language. He's even using some sarcasm by, by using these words that they would call other people and turning it on them. But he does so because false teaching and false doctrine is a big deal. It's a big deal. 
it's, it's important for us to be able to recognize the difference between right and true doctrine and false doctrine. And false doctrine. We see this warning constantly in the New Testament. Again, Paul writes this in uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. He writes this, If anyone teaches a false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teachings that promote godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. I mean, again, that's some harsh language that Paul's using here. And that tells us how important this is and how dangerous false teaching and false doctrine can be for us. False, if we start to believe false doctrine and false teaching that's out there, it, it leads us away from God's truth and God's ways, right? Again, we think we're doing righteousness, and Paul's like, no, 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 you're actually doing the opposite. It doesn't lead you to righteousness. It actually leads you to sin. It leads you away from God. It distorts our relationship with him. When we believe and buy into false teachings, it it, it it damages our view and we start worshiping a false version of God. We start worshiping a false Jesus, an idol, an image made in, in our own likeness, right? We start worshiping a false version and that ruins and, and damages our relationship with God. We gotta be careful. It damages our relationships with one another inside the church. It does, man, I'll never forget when I was uh, pastoring at another church, we had a guy uh, who was a strong believer. I, I would have told you what was on his way to becoming a leader in the church. And all of a sudden he said in a meeting with, with me and our lead pastor and our elders. And he was like, hey, by the way, guys, I'm changing my theology. And we're like, oh, this is not good. He's like, I now believe that Satan and Jesus were brothers. We're like, um, I don't, uh, don't see that. Any, could you help me? I'm not. And then he was like, and not only that, but I believe that it is wrong for us to worship Jesus. We are only to worship God the Father. So we were like, okay, we heard him out. We understood. We tried to show him scripture. We tried to show him where he was wrong, and he just dug his heels in, man. And that kind of led to some church discipline and other things, and it damaged relationships inside the church. It damaged relationships with his spouse and family. Now, praise be to God, years later, man, I'll never forget this either. Years later, we got an email from him, and he's like, hey, y'all, I've repented. I've repented. I realized the error of my way. I'm no longer believing that. And it was a great story of restoration and repentance. But man, when you believe and buy into false teaching and false doctrine, it leads you astray and it damages your relationship with God and your relationship with one another. It is dangerous. It's dangerous. And we still have false teachings today. There's no shortage of false teaching and false doctrine out there. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful. So what does that look like? It looks like just like the Judaizers. It looks like adding to the gospel. If you hear anybody say, faith in Jesus, but also this, man, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. We do not add to the gospel. Salvation is by faith in Jesus, and that's it, y'all. It is Jesus plus nothing. That equals salvation. That's it. So if we hear of anybody adding to the gospel, man, run away. Call it out and run away. Watch out for that. We also can add to things and, and, and redefine what it means to be a, a true believer, right? I mean, this is a lot of what the Judaizers were doing. Like, yeah, faith in Jesus, but man, you also better do these things. You also better follow the law. And we, we add things to what it means to be a righteous believer. We take things that are maybe our opinions or our preferences or our personal convictions about following Jesus, and we say that all believers need to do that, right? So kind of what that looks like is, yes, faith in Jesus, follow him, but you better go to this kind of church. You better go to this denomination. You better make sure that they don't sing this, this song out there. Or you better make sure that you're voting for this political 
party or this, this person, this politician. And if you don't vote for that person, well, you know, I'm not really sure you're a Christian. Or, you know, if you're really a believer, then you won't listen to that band or you won't go see that movie. And, and look, some of that is, is just wisdom, right? Like some of that is, well, it'd be unwise to do some of those things. But it doesn't make me uh, not a follower of Jesus if I do those things, right? Like that's, that's the point and that's where we need to be careful. I mean, there's so much of that in churches today. It's so prevalent. And look, we're in this age where there is no shortage of information, which is awesome, but also terrifying. Anybody can start a podcast. Anybody can start a YouTube channel and just start putting stuff out there. And we go, you know, I don't know about you, but the first thing I'm like, I need to learn this. Google, how do I blah, 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 blah. And when it comes up, like a million articles, a million videos, some of it's helpful. A lot of it's not, right? So when it comes to learning about scripture and like, dude, the, the Google, it can be dangerous. It can be really good, but it can also be dangerous. We need to be careful the information that we are taking in and choosing to believe. We need to watch out for the false teaching. And the best way to do that, y'all, is stay as close to scripture as possible. Stay as close to scripture as possible. I love what Acts 17.11 says about the people of Berea. It says, the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. We're commended in scripture for people hearing the teachings of Paul, the guy who wrote more than half of the New Testament, listening to him and going, okay, I hear you, but what does the Bible say? Let me double check. And they're commended for that. I mean, this is Paul we're talking about. He, they're commended for that. That's what we need to do. We don't just take anybody's word for it. Not even mine. Double check me, y'all. Double check. Let's rely on the scriptures. Stick to the scriptures. Stay close to scriptures. And look, here's another thing we need to do. As we stick close to the scriptures, we need to clearly define things that we would call closed-handed issues versus open-handed. So these closed-handed doctrinal issues are things that, man, if you don't believe this, then yeah, we've got a problem, and I seriously doubt your salvation. Like, if, if you came to me and like, I'm not really sure Jesus is God. I think he's just a guy. Well, okay, we need to have a conversation. That's not, nope, that's not cool. So there's those closed-handed issues that are like, man, this, this really might affect your salvation. But then there's a whole bunch of open-handed issues that good people that love Jesus can disagree on. And it's okay to disagree on, and it's okay to have different viewpoints on. We need to clearly define those in the church. We need to clearly define what are those like first-tier issues versus second, third, fourth, maybe fifth-tier issues. And the problem comes in when we swap those out. When we take an open-handed issue and we close our fist around it. When we take a third-tier issue and we elevate it to a first-tier, that leads us astray. We need to watch out for that and be careful. Stay close to Scripture. Stay close. All right, I, I, we got to move on. I'm already taking too long on that. All right, number two, number two, assurance. Number two, assurance. So he gives us a warning, and then he gives us assurance. I love this. I love this. So he tells us, hey, watch out for these false teachers. And then look at verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision. For we are the circumcision. Now, what does that mean? What's he talking about here? What he's telling us by calling him and his audience and by extension believers today, the circumcision, what he's saying here is we are the people of God. We are the people of God. Now, to really understand this, we, we got to kind of go back to circumcision in the Old Testament. So circumcision goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. And if you remember the story of Abraham, God calls this guy named Abram. He was worshiping, not God, worshiping false gods in a land that would become Babylon. He takes this guy named Abram out of that land. He says, hey, I need you to leave your family, leave everything behind because I'm going to make a new nation out of you. 
And it's out of Abraham that God makes the nation of Israel. And that was his people, right? They were the people of God. And, and God gives Abraham this promise in Genesis 12. That he's going to build this massive nation and that the whole world's going to be blessed through the people of God. And then he spends time reminding and clarifying what that means for Abraham throughout his time in Genesis. And one of those places that we come to is Genesis chapter 17, where God says this. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 4, it says this. As for me, here is my covenant with you. This is God speaking. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring and after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. And, and here's where he clarifies one of the signs of his covenant. This is important, verse 10. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You jump down to verse 14, it says this, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so here God, this is one of those moments where God is clarifying and, and restoring and renewing and, and all these things, reminding Abraham, here's the covenant. Here's what I'm committing to you. I'm gonna make you a nation. I'm gonna make you the people of God. I will be your God. Your people will be mine. This is the nation. This is the people of God. Now here's a sign for that. Here's an outward sign to show and tell people and, and see for yourselves and, and all that stuff. Like here's one of the outward signs I'm giving you. Every male must be circumcised. This is not a common practice as it is today. This was unique to Israelites during this period of time. So this was one of their signs. It was a big deal, as we see in, in verse 14. And if you don't do this, you're outside of the people of God. You are not the people of God. So to give the Judaizers a little bit of credit, you can kind of understand where, man, they're coming from this deep Jewish background, faith in Jesus, but they're like, okay, how do I reconcile the people of God? Because for so long, the people of God were just identified as an ethnicity, the Jewish people. And there's still debate on that today, right? You can, you can talk to any number of people. How do you define the people of God? And you might get some things. Well, yes, it's very much God has a plan and a, and a history with ethnic Israel. And it, ethnic Israel, like, matters. It was about ethnic Israel. And yes, the Gentiles were kind of brought into that. But man, it, it's ethnic Israel. And I would make the argument that even from the moment in Genesis 12, when God gives this promise to Abraham and carry through all the way to the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament, that the people of God... It's not defined by an ethnicity. It's defined by your heart. It's defined by faith and trust in God. That's what makes us the people of God. That's what made the Jewish people people of God. That's what makes Gentiles and us today the people of God. It is not an outward sign that makes us the people of God. It's the heart. And this was, again, the message from the beginning. You study the life of Abraham. Every time it said that God credits righteousness to him, it's a result of his faith and trust in God. Not outward symbols and things that he does. It's about the trust. It's about faith. And the, all the while, we see this message throughout the Old Testament. Yes, God wants you, people of Israel, to outwardly do the signs, outwardly circumcise, but, but God's got bigger plans. He wants to circumcise our hearts. He wants to give us a new heart, 
a heart that desires him, not the things of this world. And we see this even in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, Therefore circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you will live. I mean, you, you come into the New Testament where Paul really clarifies this in the book of Romans, and he says this in Romans chapter 2. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So Paul, man, he caught this. He understood this. It's not about what you do outwardly. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about what family you were born into. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. What brings us into the family of God, what brings us into the people of God is our faith and our trust in Jesus. And what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the Philippians, he's reminding anybody who would read that, he's reminding us today, man, if anybody tells you otherwise, don't believe it. Don't believe it. We need to have assurance that we are the people of God. We are the people of God. And it doesn't matter the outward symbol that we may or may not have. What matters is our heart and our faith in Jesus. That's what makes us the people of God. And we need to hold tightly to that. Because, man, once we start to lose that foundation, once we start to forget that truth, man, it's so much easier for false teaching to come in and lead us astray. It's so much easier for the things of this world to rip our joy in Jesus away from us. We need to hold tightly to that foundational truth that we are God's people, that he loves us, that he gave Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and that he saves us and gives us the promise of eternal life with him. We need to have assurance that we are the people of God and that we don't need anything else other than faith in Jesus to have that. So he gives us assurance. The third thing he does here is he gives us a definition. He gives us a definition. So he says, hey, you're the circumcision. You're the people of God. And here's what that means. Here's how we define the people of God. It's not by circumcision. It's not by following the law. It's this. And he lays out three aspects of, of following Jesus and, and being the people of God. So I want to read that for us again. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. So Paul gives us three characteristics, three aspects of this definition. The first one, he says, is, is the people of God worship by the Spirit of God. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, that word that Paul uses for worship was often used in kind of pagan ritual religious practices, like whatever religion you practice, you, know, you do things to practice that religion, that, that's, that's worship, right? That's, that's worship. It's also a word that could be translated serve or minister, so we could translate this as the people of God are the ones who serve or minister by the Spirit of God. So the first aspect, the first part of the definition of the people of God, is we are people that serve Jesus, that serve him, that serve the name of Jesus, that minister in his name. And Paul says it in a different way in Romans 12.1, right? Many of us have probably heard this. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3. The same exact word. So how do we define worship? It's by giving our lives to Jesus. Giving our lives in service to him, in worship of him. By saying, Jesus, you get it all. Take it all. And look, that, 
That's part of why we call this a worship service, right? We gather to have a worship service on Sundays because when we come here as the people of God, we are offering ourselves to God. It's a moment during the week, each week, where we can pause and say, you know what, Jesus? This is all for you. You get it all. You take it all. It's all for you, Lord. And not only do we do, we do that as an act and just in our own hearts of, of just giving ourselves over to God every day, we, we do it externally, right? We do it through actually doing things for Jesus. That's why we serve on Sundays. That's why we have volunteers and do things for his name, right? We don't just gather to come and hear and be lifted up and then go about our way. No, we, we come to worship and serve him. That's why we have this. That's what we're to do every week. It's a reminder of, of giving our hearts to Jesus, our hearts and our lives in full devotion to him. That's worship, and that's what the people of God do. We worship by the Spirit of God. The second thing he says there is we are to boast in Christ Jesus. We're to boast in Christ Jesus. Another way we could say that is that word means glory. We, we glory in Christ Jesus, or more to the point, we, we give glory to Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ Jesus. What this means for us we can draw from that is what, what it means to give glory to or boast in. It means to, to find our satisfaction, to find our joy, to find our fulfillment in Jesus. To remember and realize that nothing in this life we can have without him, right? He is the source of it all. It all comes from him and it's all for him and to him. To boast in Christ Jesus means that, that Jesus is our everything. That we see Jesus as our treasure. Jesus says this in, in a parable in, in Matthew chapter 13. He says this. He describes living for him in the kingdom of heaven. He's, he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he, find, when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. I, that, that's a beautiful picture of what it means to glory in Jesus, to find our everything in him, that he is so valuable, that he is so worthy, that we would give everything for him. We say, like, this man sells everything he had to buy this field. Why? Because the treasure in that field was more valuable than anything he owned or could ever own after that. This is the most valuable thing that he could have. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's what it means to boast in him. That's what it means to glory in him. We find our everything in Jesus. That we see him truly as better and greater and more glorious than anything this world has to offer. And y'all, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we can and should admit that there's a lot of shiny objects out there that look like better treasure. That look like better treasure. And it's not. And I, can, I mean, you could just name anything, right? I mean, wealth, possessions, even family and, and our children and our jobs, like good things that we have in life, we can elevate above Jesus. And those things make poor saviors, they make poor gods. And Jesus here is reminding us this truth to protect us from that because he knows man, that in him, that's where we find our everything. That all this other stuff, whether it's good or bad or whatever it is, man, it, it can't amount to what Jesus can and does in our lives. That's what it means to boast in him, to say no to the shiny objects of this world and yes to Jesus and see him as our greatest treasure. That's boasting in him. And then lastly, he says that the people of God do not put confidence in the flesh. 
And Paul, again, is going back to directing his, his attention to the false teachers. Because what he would say is that ultimately that they were putting their confidence in the flesh. They were putting their confidence and assurance in Jesus with themselves, by their hand, by their works, by saying, man, look, look how good of a job I'm doing. Like, Jesus, aren't you glad to have me on your team? Look at all that I do for you. Look at all that I give to you. Look at how awesome of a leader I am. Look at, look at how much knowledge I have in you. Look how many things I've learned in your name. How great am I? That's putting confidence in the flesh. That's putting confidence in ourselves. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. That's not good. That is not good. Jesus does not want us to place confidence in ourselves. He wants us to place confidence in him, in him. And to realize how much we need and rely on Jesus. I mean, even going back to our salvation, this is like for us that are believers, if we are ever struggling with pride, man, we should just remember and remind ourselves of our salvation and that should destroy any amount of pride in our hearts. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'll make you raise your hands for this, but those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who would claim the name of Christ, who would say, yes, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian. Here's the words Paul uses to describe us. Foolish, weak, insignificant, despised, nothing. Doesn't that just fill us with pride? That's who we are outside of Christ. And yet because of Christ, we have righteousness and sanctification and redemption and forgiveness and salvation, the promise of eternal life and perfection with him and all the other many spiritual blessings that he promises us. We are not saved because of how awesome and great we are. We are saved because of how awesome and great he is. Amen, church? We need to remind ourselves of that truth. If we ever feel like, man, we've got something to bring to the table that, that, man, look at us, let's just go back to that and remind ourselves of who we are outside of Christ and how great and awesome he is. And Jesus tells this parable, we'll close this section out with this, Jesus tells this parable to, to help us see the importance of not putting our confidence in the flesh and our confidence instead in him. He tells this parable in Luke chapter 18, he says this, Starting in verse 9, he says, And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, 
a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So church, the question for us today is, is am I the Pharisee or am I the tax collector? Am I putting confidence in my flesh, in my works, in my abilities, my strength, my knowledge, whatever it is? Am I putting my confidence there? Or am I realizing my place before the Lord? Can't even look up and just beating my chest, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Where's our confidence? Where's our hope? Where's our dependence? Is it on us or is it on Jesus? So we are the people of God, as Paul tells us, and we demonstrate that truth. We live out that truth by worship and service to Jesus, by boasting and glorying and finding our satisfaction in him and by putting our confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. And so as we, as we wrap up today, all of what Paul says here in verses two through three goes back to verse one. Like I told you, that, that verse one, that, that first opening verse, man, that, that couches everything that he's saying here, that we are to rejoice in the Lord. And that part of the way we protect our joy and we keep our joy in Jesus is by watching out for false teachers and avoiding false teachers and false doctrine, by remembering who we are in Christ, that we are the people of God and that nothing can take that away from us. And by living for Jesus in the ways that he calls us to, by walking in obedience to him and relying on him and walking in dependence upon him. As I said there in verse one, Paul says that, man, it's no trouble for me to say this to you again because it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard. The things that he says here and the things that he's gonna say in the rest of chapter three and what follows are a safeguard. It's a way for us to protect our joy in Christ. Because there is no shortage of things that want to steal our joy, church. There's no shortage of, of people. And y'all know that. Like the, the drain of just like negativity and things like that, that that can be out there. And maybe you experience that, whether it might be in your family, it might be with your friends, it might be in the workplace. And you're just like, man, this is just like such a toxic, negative environment. That can easily steal our joy away if we let it, right? The things of this world, the troubles of this world, this is why we don't rest our joy on our circumstances or what's happening around us. Because, man, this is, this is life, right? It's the ups and downs. It's the roller coaster. If you can even start out a, a week really great, and then by Wednesday, it's like, man, this is the worst week ever, right? If we define our joy by our circumstances, it's going to be in and out, man. It's going to be a constant open and shut door of just losing our joy left and right. That's why we center it on Christ. We center in Christ. We don't let our circumstances steal our joy and rob us of our joy. We let the truth protect us, that we are always the people of God, that he always loves us and has a plan and is at work in our lives, even in those ups and downs, the good times and the hard times, that our God is always with us and is always at work. May we ground ourselves in that truth, that our sovereign God, powerful over everything and in control of everything, loves us and is with us every step of the way. We ground ourselves in that, and we seek to walk in obedience to Jesus. We give our lives to him, church. That's what protects our joy. Don't let the world around you, don't let the people around you steal your joy. Let the truth of God safeguard you. I'm gonna pray for us in a moment and we're gonna do what we do every single week and that is spend time in 
in praise and worship of our Savior. And part of what we do every single work, church, those of you that are here, you know this, we, we take time for communion every single week. So this is a time for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who are believers. And it's a time for us to just take a moment as the band comes up and as I pray, they're gonna play. We're gonna sing some songs, but, but believer in the room, take, take time. Sit and be with the Lord. Prepare your heart for this moment to take and receive communion. Maybe the Lord has brought some things to mind that, man, I have been listening to some of those that want to steal my joy. I've been giving my joy to the things of this world instead of Jesus. Or I've been listening and following to uh, some false teaching. And, and Lord, I, I need to repent and come back to you. And the beauty of the gospel is that the, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus never runs out. It never runs out. And he is always right there ready to receive us with open arms when we repent and turn back to him. So if there's things that the Lord has brought up, man, don't neglect that. He's, he's working. That's the spirit talking to you. Don't shut it down. Spend time in repentance. Maybe you're just reminded again of the beauty of the gospel that Jesus loves you so much that he left the glory and the riches of heaven, came down to earth, lived the perfect life we never could, died the death that we deserve because of our sin, takes on the wrath due our sin, dies on the cross, gives his life for us, and then raises from the dead three days later. We're just being reminded of the beauty and the truth and the goodness of Jesus. And we just need to sit and praise and lift high his name and, and boast in him, right? Glory in Jesus. And in church, as you're ready, you come to the tables, you take the bread, you take the cup, you eat and drink and remember who our Savior is. Remember what he has done for us. But if you're here and you're not a believer, this time isn't for you. We're very thankful that you're here and I want you to keep coming. You hear that, please? We want you to keep coming. This, this time is only for believers. But what Paul reminds us here in this passage is that the door is open to all who would put their faith in Jesus, to any who would turn from their sin and trust in him. And in order to step into the family of God, into the people of God, the only requirement, the only thing we have to do is put our faith in Jesus. And what that means is that we trust in Jesus for our salvation. We don't put confidence in ourselves we don't think that, man, someday my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds, and in some way, somehow, I'll be good enough for God. First of all, that can't ever happen. It's not possible. The second part of that is, is, is we don't have to do that. That's not what God says. He says, no, 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 just turn to me. Beat your chest. Have mercy on me. And he does. Put your faith in him. If you have questions about that, want to talk, man, I'll be hanging out in the back. I'd love to talk with you about that. And really, honestly, anybody here would love to talk with you about that. Don't walk away today. Let today be the day of your salvation. Put your faith in Jesus. Let me pray for us and we'll step in this time of worship. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence in our lives, Lord. And I thank you for the reminder here, Lord, that we have our joy seated in you. It's in you. In Christ is our joy, Lord, and keep it there. Safeguard us, protect us, Lord. Let us not, not, not seek to find our joy in anything else. Let us not give our joy to anything else or anyone else in this world, Lord. It's you that we find it in, Lord. So thank you for this reminder, Lord. I pray that you protect each one of us from false teachings. It's so pervasive and it's so, Lord, sometimes subtle. And it can just so easily lead us astray, Lord. Protect each one of us from that. Protect this church from that, Lord. Let us never preach another gospel. Let us never preach something contrary to your word, Lord. Keep us tied closely to you. 
And Lord, thank you for your reminder that we are the people of God. Lord, lead us to worship in you. Lead us to boasting in you. Lead us to putting our confidence in you, Jesus. So we thank you. We lift high your name today. In your name we pray.